From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, New Guidelines for Plaquenil Screening, Part 1. The manifestations are a result of the metabolic damage to the photoreceptors that has a particular and a peculiar uh, pattern within the fundus. First this. Imagine a library of 100,000 books in subjects that interest you and subjects that don't. The books of this library are arranged, bizarrely, by publisher and date of publication. How useful would such a library be to you? How soon would you give up on trying to find a book that really interested you? ASCRS's impressive online content has been a little like that library until now. The new ASCRS Center for Learning at ASCRS.org slash learn organizes the vast and growing ASCRS online content, podcasts, and CME offerings into a unified, searchable whole so that we can find the material we want in the format that best suits us. Go to ASCRS.org and click on Center for Learning or go directly to ASCRS.org slash learn. Hydroxychloroquine, or Plaquenil, is an important and highly useful medication. It is also a medication associated with the risk of serious and permanent vision loss as a result of pigmentary maculopathy. Traditionally, Plaquenil maculopathy has been identified on examination as a bullseye pigmentary pattern, but frankly, diagnosing hydroxychloroquine maculopathy by identification of a macular bullseye is like diagnosing keratoconus by Munson sign. In short, the pathology has to be so fulminant and so late stage for the maculopathy to be visible on examination that the associated vision loss will necessarily be profound and unrecoverable. It is therefore important to identify signs of hydroxychloroquine maculopathy long before physical manifestations are evident. That's why guidelines for hydroxychloroquine maculopathy monitoring have been established and why they have been revised several times over the last decade. The latest revision, published in the June 2016 issue of Ophthalmology, recommended a number of modifications to the earlier screening dogma. The chief author of this paper is Michael Marmor, and I'm delighted to have him as my guest for this important podcast. Our conversation was long and detailed, and it is precisely these details that matter. The conversation will be divided into two podcast episodes. We hear the first half of my conversation with Michael Marmor today and the conclusion next time. I want to frame our discussion of hydroxychloroquine, of, of plaquenil screening, with a quote from your paper in ophthalmology, which is this. The goal of screening for retinopathy is not to stop valuable drugs at the first borderline abnormality, but to recognize definitive signs of toxicity at an early enough stage to prevent loss of visual acuity. So my, my question to you is this, Mike, why shouldn't we discontinue hydroxychloroquine at the first borderline sign? Simply because it's an excellent drug from a medical standpoint. Uh, it's much lower toxicity than systemic steroids, immunosuppressives, the other things that might be used to treat lupus or 
Ultimately, if patients can continue to take it, they should. The toxicity does not develop in a week or a month. So one always has time to retest the visual field and see if that funny spot is real or just uh, uh, just a lack of coffee or to see if that maybe there is or isn't an ellipsoid zone line uh, on the OCT, uh, whether you look at it the same way the next day with a slightly different cut. Um, and uh, we all know that the very beginning, is there or isn't there a sign in ophthalmology, uh, often, often won't pan out later. You mentioned some of these, but let, let me ask you, what are the manifestations of hydroxychloroquine toxicity? And Mike, do they vary by race? Sure. This drug is, from a human standpoint, essentially a photoreceptor toxin. Uh, the inner retina is really not significantly affected. So the manifestations are a result of metabolic damage to the photoreceptors that has a particular and a peculiar uh, pattern within the fundus. In most patients in this country, and we used to think simply most patients, it's, it's the paraphoveal or bullseye pattern of damage. Uh, but it turns out that that's a predominant pattern of people of European or Caucasian descent, whereas people of Asian descent, and that includes Southeast Asia, China, Japan, the Philippines, the pattern of damage is more often, not always, but more often at a pericentral, really an extramacular uh, location, typically uh, in the region of the vascular arcades. And the central macula and the perifoveal zone may be quite normal. So what you're looking for are early signs of perifoveal or extramacular ring-shaped damage, most often tending to, uh, uh, to result from inferior damage in the retina. That's not absolute, but it's common. Um, and so you look for early scotomas, early change on the OCT, early changes in fundus autofluorescence, uh, or in the multifocal ERG. And all of these can pick up uh, damage showing photoreceptor dysfunction or actually a loss of photoreceptors uh, at relatively early stages. And that means before there is damage to the RPE layer. The RPE won't uh, actually begin to show damage until the photoreceptors are almost gone uh, in a particular region. And if you find the OCT damage or the field damage that's clear-cut before RPE damage, uh, there is no visible bullseye. You're trying to pick up the changes before there is a bullseye. The classic OCT sign in the European um, descent patients is a uh, so-called sombrero or flying saucer sign when there's a little dip of thinning in the outer nuclear layer, the photoreceptor layer, just to either side of the fovea and typically loss of the EZ or lipsoid zone line and sometimes the IZ or interdigitation zone as well. Mike, it's understood that hydroxychloroquine maculopathy may continue to progress even after cessation of the drug. Now, you wrote that it's unlikely to be, this progressive loss after cessation is unlikely to be the result of a retained depot of hydroxychloroquine. Why do you say this? And if it's not due to a medication reservoir, why do you think that the maculopathy can progress? 
We don't have absolute answers on this, but it doesn't make sense that there is still a reservoir three, four, five years after the drug is stopped in maintaining a concentration high enough to, to cause damage, which is a significant level of the drug. Uh, this drug uh, stores in melanin and also in the, in the liver and the kidney and various organs. And over a, a couple of months after you stop the drug, it's essentially gone from the bloodstream. Um, but cells that are metabolically injured uh, are at risk to continue to break down over time simply because they can't sustain themselves or because time and aging and other factors begin to intervene. And I think that's probably what's, what's taking place. It's not that, that there still is drug in the eye, but that cells that were severely uh, compromised continue to break down. Um, and what you see is that in eyes that are caught relatively early before a visible bullseye is that there's a little bit of deepening of the scotoma uh, or a little bit of further thinning in the areas that are damaged over a year or so, but with really no significant encroachment on the fovea. But once you have RPE damage in a bullseye, there's a lot of metabolic damage and we can see continued uh, expansion of the scotomas and of the areas of thinning uh, that can go on for actually quite a number of years after the drug is stopped. It's hard to predict accurately. And depending on whether the fovea is already beginning to show damage or not, uh, there's a moderate chance that the patient could lose central vision loss. But that's not going to happen if you catch people before any RPE damage. Mike, before the uh, 2011 iteration of uh, the, the Plaquenil um, monitoring guidelines. We talked in terms of six milligrams per kilogram uh, per, per, per day as being the dose below which represented low risk and, and above which was high risk. And we talked about cumulative dose. In the 2011 iteration, we talked about the dose relative to lean weight, um, which uh, we could estimate um, by uh, using ideal weight and patient height, except for very thin patients where we would use actual weight. Now, what is the, the current recommended uh, dose or, or, or what is the dose below which we deem a patient to be low risk and above which a patient's higher risk uh, in the 2016 guidelines that we're talking about today? Okay. Uh, well, we got about three questions as Again, to answer in one, let me just state outright, because if there's any one number to take away from this uh, conversation, it's keep the dose under five milligrams per kilogram real weight. That's the bottom line. Now, what is the history of this and why has this changed over time? First of all, the 6.5 number was purely anecdotal and came out of old papers looking for bullseyes and just seeing that there weren't too many people who showed bullseyes under 6.5 milligrams um, per weight or, or ideal weight. If you look at older literature, you know, going back literally 20 years or more, there are some papers that studied uh, the absorption of this drug in the tissues and showed that, uh, that hydroxychloroquine accumulates in the liver and the, in the kidney and glands basically and in pigmented tissue and doesn't really show much in muscle, skin, bone, and other tissues. But that was misinterpreted 
by one author writing about this as to uh, indicate no absorption in fat. And that was published, and that comment got propagated and propagated and propagated by me, in fact, as well as many others. We all tend to use um, secondary sources. Um, but if you go back to the primary literature, it really does not avoid fat, at least any more than it avoids muscle and other, uh, other tissues that contribute to body weight. Then, in just a year or two ago, a colleague of mine, Ron Mellis, and I had the opportunity to look at patients from, from the Kaiser Permanente system here in Northern California, which is a large HMO, and we were able to isolate on their computers almost 2,500 patients using hydroxychloroquine more than five years, and we could look at their OCTs and their visual fields and really document what was real and what was not in the medical record. With this large population, it was very clear that the cutoff between people that were at relatively reasonable, reasonably low risk, and those that were showing toxicity was five milligrams per kilogram real weight, and the, and the statistics showed clearly that real weight was a better predictor. The problem with lean weight or ideal weight is that it tended to overestimate the dose for small, thin women who are a good pop part of the population that takes, takes these drugs for rheumatoid disease. And they were getting much too much toxicity. Um, now you say, is there a warning dose? The old literature used to say 1,000 grams is sort of the point at which risk gets very high. Well, it ain't true because a small woman, woman now at five milligrams per kilogram is only going to take 200 milligrams gonna, uh, per day and is going to accumulate the drug very slowly. So there's no absolute number that signifies risk. What you have to do is look at in the new recommendations, which were just, just published 2016 in the journal Ophthalmology or the new academy recommendations as a Kaplan-Meier curve. Uh, don't be put off by the name. It's a very simple simple graph, and you can see that if people stay at five milligrams per kilogram, you can see exactly what their risk is going to be at five years or 10 years or 20 years on a population basis, or what it'll be if they're taking, taking more. And you really have to look at the combination of what's their dose and how long have they taken it. There's no simple number that's going to be safe. Mike, when we spoke last, uh, several years back, when we were talking about the uh, previous guidelines, um, you had recommended a follow-up for low-risk patients of an initial exam done, I guess, within the, the, the first year or so of starting Plaquenil, the next exam five years later, and then examinations every year thereafter. Is it the same uh, recommended follow-up frequency for low-risk patients now? And what is your recommended follow-up frequency for patients above the recommended dosing? The, uh, the recommendation to use, do a baseline exam, and then if there's nothing special going on, it's okay to wait five years, still stands. Realistically, some rheumatologists, some ophthalmologists want to see their patients every year, get them started, but it's kind of a... Uh, kind of an ill use of healthcare, healthcare dollars. Why? First, the baseline exam is basically a fundus exam. That's the only place the fundus exam is useful for, uh, for screening this new drug. Um, why not later? Because if you see a bullseye, you're too late. You missed the boat. But at baseline, you want to make sure the person doesn't have 
have retinitis pigmentosa, geographic atrophy from AMD, Stargard disease, bad diabetic retinopathy, heaven knows what, that might be a contraindication either because it's a defective retina and you don't want to add a toxin um, or because they already are going to have a bunch of scotomas and bad OCTs and you're not going to be able to judge how the drug is doing. Now, a couple of drusen, don't sweat it. If the OCT looks good and the vision is good and the field is good, that's okay. But that's why you do the baseline. After five years, if they don't have risk, and what makes risk? Um, I'll tell you in a sec. If they don't have special risks, uh, even after five years, the risk of, of toxicity on a population basis is less than 1%. In fact, if they're taking the proper dose, it's not much over 1% even at 10 years, but somehow that seemed a little too long to recommend. What are the risk factors? Well, overdose is the biggest one. Uh, the next is kidney disease because the drug is largely excreted by the kidneys, and so if they have bad uh, GFR, renal filtration, they're, they're essentially getting a much higher dose and you don't know how much. And the third is a peculiar one that we discovered a bit by accident in the study, which is the drug tamoxifen, which seems to be synergistic. It's a retinal toxin in its own right, and it increases the risk of toxicity four to five-fold. So those are the major risk factors. Age, uh, liver disease doesn't seem to be much of a factor. They're, those are really the biggies. You ask me if somebody has the risk factors, then that's why we're doctors. You have to use your medical judgment. Uh, if somebody has, has, uh, has significant renal dysfunction, I would certainly try to lower the dose by half. And then you kind of look and see. As I said, the toxicity isn't going to occur overnight. You can always uh, wait maybe six months if they're, if they're not taking a large dose and they've got some renal function. Um, maybe see them again. Get an idea how things are going. It becomes judgment. Tamoxifen, you could probably see them once a year as long as you're looking very carefully for early signs and you're willing to try to verify them. And why do I always verify? I like to have ideally two different methods of testing that confirm the uh, damage if I'm going to stop, stop the drug at an early stage. Now, if somebody has a big ring scotoma or um, you know, obvious uh, uh, sombrero sign uh, on OCT, uh, that may be clear at their first exam. We'll end today's portion of my conversation with Michael Marmore here and pick up where we left off next time. Michael Marmore is professor of ophthalmology at the Stanford Byers Eye Institute at the Stanford School of Medicine in Palo Alto, California. His paper, Recommendations on Screening for Chloroquine and Hydroxychloroquine Maculopathy 2016 Revision, appears in the June 2016 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Marmor or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.